Welcome back to the program. Ginger Rogers once said of her partnership with Fred Astaire that she did everything he did, but backwards and in high heels. In many ways, this gets to the heart of partnerships, two people that have a similar mission, but see it in opposite and positively reinforcing ways. The examples are, of course, legend. Jobs and Wozniak, Lennon and McCartney, Parker and Stone, Larry and Sergey, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, Crick and Watson, Joel and Ethan Cohn, and Hewlett and Packard, just to name a few. When you look at the list, it becomes clear that there is something special about the power of two. Is it an accident or something inherent in the creative process? That's the focus of Joshua Wolf Schenk's new book, Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. Joshua Shank is an essayist, author, and curator. His magazine pieces include cover stories in Harper's Time and the Atlantic, where his essay, What Makes Us Happy, was the most read article in the history of the magazine's website. His work has also appeared in Slate, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. It is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Wolf Shank here to talk about Powers of Two. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to have you here. As you began to look at this and, and studied this in Powers of Two, did you find that this was something that was inherently about creativity, or does it have more to do with human nature and our, our, our sort of innate need to collaborate? I do think it's both. Uh, I, I think that it's, there. you know, we organize our lives around relationships, friendships, and love, of course, are fundamental to are socialized, and yet it, it receives appropriate attention there. Most little boys and little girls grew up knowing that you know friendships and, and, and romantic relationships are going to be critical to their lives, whereas creative people uh, are not told this. In fact, they are given the opposite message that the, the lone genius, the, this mythical uh, creator who is often you know, short of... of influences even, but let alone active collaborators, this kind of immaculate conception idea of creativity is held up over and over again. You rattled off an epic list of active collaborators who we, to a ridiculous degree, consider separately, as with Lennon and McCartney, you know, there's a constant conversation, who's better, who's worse, and, and this and that. But there's also a great amount of collaboration and relational exchange that doesn't fit that typical model where you have someone that we know about and a hidden partner like Vincent Van Gogh and his brother Theo. Most people would be surprised, as I was, to hear that there was an active partnership, a full partnership there. And then there are many cases where you have two creative people who are hugely affecting each other, but they're each doing their own individual body of work, as with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Is there a fundamental difference as you looked at these partnerships between creative collaboration and business partnerships? And, and how did they play out in different ways? I am considering creativity very broadly as the bringing of something new and, and beautiful and useful into the world. So for the purposes of my inquiry, the iPhone and Starry Night and Strawberry Fields Forever are, you know, they're each instances of creativity. And I'm, I'm consider, considering Warren Buffett and his work with Charlie Munger, the way that they rewired the way that we understand investing in the modern world to be an enormously creative act. Um, and I'm looking for convergences, for similarities 
because the project here is to create a vocabulary and a basic understanding of a phenomenon that has, that has eluded us and that we have neglected and obscured over the years. So that's why there's this you know, very big tent approach in my work. And as you look at it and you look at the history of some of these partnerships and collaborations, are there fundamental changes or consistencies that you've seen in those relationships and partnerships that are going through failure and or tough times versus those that are going through success and positive outcomes? That's a great question. Uh, It's certainly true that there's a lot for us to learn And while I'm talking about great luminaries, the book is intended to illustrate with these great cases of, you know, these these epic figures, the themes of everyday life, everyday creative life. And I also have interviewed uh, many scores of of creative partners who are are not household names. And we do, we can learn about who stays on track and who, you know, um, you know, uh, gets blown up by looking at these many examples. At the same time, many of the things that we think of as evidence of failure, evidence of, a, of, of something not working, are in fact part of the ordinary process of, uh, of, a, of creative partnerships. So for instance, conflict, which we are trained to think of as a kind of inherent problem and a sign that a relationship is not working, may very well be an aspect of creativity. And it's very often the case, in fact, I argue that it's really universally the case that some kind of oppositional tension between two people is inherent to a productive exchange. And it it may actually be outright hostile, but much more often there is a, a, a quality of friendliness and affection that gets mixed with a kind of opposition and kind of instigation and you certainly see this with Lennon and McCartney. You see this with adversarial collaborators like Matisse and Picasso trying to outdo one another. And you even see it within partnerships that are enormously friendly, but there's a sense that, wow, if you're, if you're performing at a high level, I gotta, I gotta step up my game to, to keep up with you. And th- then there's this back and forth in that way. What about equality in the relationship, particularly in this age today of celebrity culture, when there's always the possibility that one of the partners becomes more famous? Talk about how that plays out in the context both of the relationship and how it impacts creativity. Yes. Another good question. You know, we, we don't consider collaboration and relationships and creativity nearly enough, but when we do, we often bring this assumption that both people need to be doing the same thing and that, both, that everything needs to be equal, power, credit, and so forth. People often ask me with a kind of wry smile on their face, oh, you wrote a book on creativity and, and relationship. How come you did it alone? Like they're, like they're catching me on something, like I'm some kind of hypocrite. And in fact, authors very often are fulfilling the role of the author uh, by themselves and they're in relationship to an editor who has a different role and who has a, has whose role has a different relationship to public acclaim and, 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 and public regard than the authors. My editor is not on this call now and that's not part of his job to represent this work in the public. 
uh, and he gets credit in a different way, but one that's very satisfying to him. And I get credit in a certain way that's satisfying to me. So asymmetry in terms of credit can be perfectly healthy um, depending on what people want. And, And one thing that people really need to get the message on is that to be part of a creative enterprise does not mean being a kind of stereotypically creative or original type who wants to be on stage and wants to be, you know, at the center of a room. To be the person who is helping produce, who is, uh, who is, who is logistically minded, who knows how to put things into the right form to make a, a, an original idea work, that itself is immensely creative. We're used to thinking about creativity as just being the dreamer, but it's really the dreamer plus the doer. Now, of course, asymmetry and credit can also be a problem, and I, you're alluding to that. People's egos can get in the way, and those things do need to be treated. Everyone definitely needs to be respected according to his or her own desires and needs, um, but it doesn't need to be in the same way. And actually, usually it's not in what I've found. Usually they're, they're, the, the, the two people have different needs along those lines. What about in situations where it's two partners that have evolved together? If we Let's just keep it in Silicon Valley for the moment. Somebody like Larry and Sergey starting up together as opposed to, say, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, who were put together later. Yes. Well, they, they, they certainly, that's certainly true that they, they're different arcs. There's the same quality, which is a sense of initial chemistry and excitement, the two people can do something for each other beyond what they can do on their own. And it's true that Larry and Sergey developed an idea together organically, and Facebook was clearly very well established by the time Sheryl Sandberg joined. And yet, there too, there is a sense of a kind of new beginning when she came in because, you know, who knows where Facebook would be without her. This is another case where I there are many variations and manifestations of creative exchange, and it's important for us to know that because it helps give us a kind of template of options to choose from as we're trying to enact this in our own lives. And yet the basic recurring themes are really, really similar, which is helpful because, you know, it helps us organize this pursuit. It's not, it's not kind of infinite variation. Uh, it's, it's a, there, there are, regular themes and I organize the book according to these themes that I have personally found very helpful in my own creative life to see, okay, now I'm going through this and now I'm going through this stage. Now I'm dealing with this question, this question of how I negotiate, for instance, my own individual ego with the reality that I'm the reality that I'm bound up in another person in a joint project, this relationship between the I and the we. Every pair has to go through that. And there are many many variations, of course, in how they deal with it and and where it leads, but every pair has to address that in one way or another. You mentioned an interesting word a few moments ago, the idea of chemistry. How important is that initial chemistry in the context of these partnerships? Well, it's foundational. That's where where my project began. That's where the book begins. Um, It's not necessarily love at first sight creatively, uh, sometimes it takes a little while to develop, and it's always true that that initial sense of chemistry or excitement that happens in a flash, that's not the same as a partnership. 
partnership by definition takes time to evolve because you have to move through, you have to not just be excited by someone, you have to see that they're going to deliver and have confidence in them. And confidence eventually moves to trust and trust eventually you know, leads to faith. And that's where you can really have a, 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 a solid we. Um, but chemistry is essential and learning to pay attention to chemistry in our everyday lives I think it's the single most important thing that a creative person um, needs to do, and something that we're we're just not—it's just—it's—it's it's given uh, very little emphasis in our in our culture. What do we learn when we look at, at two people that were successful, perhaps, and/or famous in their own right, and then come together as a creative partnership and are successful doing that? And on the other side of it. You know, and Leonard McCartney is probably a good example. Those that have been successful as a partnership and then try and strike out on their own. Yeah. Uh, are you thinking of anyone in particular as a uh, in in the first case? Is there an example on your mind for not necessarily? Not necessarily. I mean, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld might be an example there. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld and David is an interesting case. They certainly each you know had 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 a career, Seinfeld was a was doing well as a stand up and, and Larry David had had a career as a TV writer. Nothing near the explosive power of the Seinfeld show that, you know, launched them both into the stratosphere and it's very clearly, you know, this it's a classic case of two people becoming something much, much bigger together. Because Larry David had this dark dyspeptic, kind of challenging uh, style of humor. He was, he, he, and he was, he was, as a stand-up comic, he was very weird because he would get up on stage and he would, he would, he would badmouth the audience and then storm off. Where Seinfeld was this very winsome, lovable, sweet character, also very, very funny. So they, they, they had these, they had many points of alignment and they, and they both were just, they loved the kind of the mysteries and the enigmas of everyday life in this place where, you know, there's, there's no kind of clearly written rule for what you do. Like how far away do you stand from someone when you talk and what happens when someone gives you a gift you don't like and you give it to someone else. They both, they, they, they had these neurotic kind of uh, fascination with, with, with these questions and yet their differences in style um, complemented each other to, to such an enormous degree, and that's where Seinfeld comes from. And I, while I'm a fan of each of those guys separately, um, I, I think that I think that the the apotheosis of each of their careers is in is in that show they did together. And what about on the other side, the partnerships that then strike out on their own? Well, you do often see two people who, I mean, it's often the case that two people are never quite as good as they were with the other. Uh, that, that is, I think, the case with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, although I'm a big fan of Wings, and I, I, I love what John Lennon did in the 70s, too. Um, but but it's, I don't think that that work is going to be, you know, remembered in uh, hundreds of years the way the, the, the Beatles' work will be, certainly. And... Um, you know, it's also true that when you see two people go off separately and do well, you have to ask what separation means because it may be that they have integrated 
an awareness of the other person to such a degree, such a degree that they, the partnership has become a part of who they are. It may be that they're playing old themes that were really developed and formed in partnership. Um, the, the great psychologist Daniel Gilbert and his partner Timothy Wilson, when they were young scientists, they designed experiments together and they met constantly. They, they drove for these kind of day-long summits. And they now are able to have a much more separate life. Uh, Gilbert is at Harvard and Wilson is at UVA. And they don't need to talk to each other quite so much. Uh, but that's because they laid the groundwork and they know how he, the other guy thinks and they can anticipate certain questions and certain reactions. And, and, and this is one of the things that gets really, really interesting is the way that we take partnerships inside our minds and that affects the way we think, which is really the, the, the great gold standard for this, this stuff, um, is, you know, how it gets into our heads sort of out of the physical world. Uh, of, of actual interaction. I know you've looked at it, obviously, in, in the context of twos, in the, in the powers of twos. What about, and, and have you looked at larger groups, larger organizations, the businesses, perhaps, that come together with, with three, four, five people that are very successful, and in fact, it may be a bit of, of Big Bang Theory, those five people then go off and, and form other creative partnerships? Yes, and that interaction is, is really interesting to me. You know, clearly teams and groups are a huge part of our culture. You know, a jazz trio or, you know, a corporate team of six or eight people. And it's, it's all, always relevant to look at the group in that instance. Look at the U.S. Senate of 100 people. There, there are lines that you can draw, and it's necessary to consider the whole. The, what I found in, in the literature is that the pair is the primary creative unit and therefore deserves special attention for that reason. And it's also true that dyads operate within larger groups. So with Monty Python, you had six guys, but you also had two, two writing partnerships that broke off to do work on their own and bring it back to the group. And I think that's critical, certainly for a business audience, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about, um, you know, a group or six of, of six or eight, and there's an enormous, you know, consultants and, and a gazillion books that help you think about teams and how to structure teams, but there's virtually nothing on the, on, on dyads. And I'm not saying the team is unimportant. I'm just saying that we hardly paid any attention to this thing that's critically important, which is pairs of two which can operate within this larger sphere. I mean, Lennon and McCartney, clearly, they were part of a band, and George Harrison's favorite joke does apply. How many Beatles does it take to change a light bulb for? And John and Paul did not leave those guys behind when they went into the studio, when they, when they, when they played live. They, they depended on that unit. They also depended on the larger circle that included George Martin, included Brian Epstein, included their engineer Jeff Emmerich, and yet, the, the the core of that, the nucleus, was not one person. It was two people and what they did for each other together. How different did you find it when you looked at couples that, that were romantically linked or even brothers like Joel and Ethan Cohn? 
How did how yes. are those relationships different? Well, the the main difference is that if you are working with someone with whom you do not have another bond, then you you know there's a there's a there's a possibility for increased distance, um, and and there's you know you're 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 you know the natural kind of sealing quality of that other bond, whether it be siblings or, or, or married pairs, is absent. And that's not necessarily to the disadvantage of a partnership, but it does have a slightly different quality. And I do think that pairs that have this other bond, there's a, they can endure, uh, they may be set up better to endure kind of rocky periods because they have the other relationship to fall back on, number one. And number two, there may be less uh, opportunity for any third person to get between them um, because they have that other bond. One of the things that happened to the Beatles in the end was that you know, they were young, they were boys when they got together, and then they were very young men, and their, their friends were much more important than women, but they came to a time when that, that shifted and that was a complicating factor for them. So there definitely are some variations. But again, whether you're, you know, related by blood or you have gone to the altar and stood before a priest or rabbi or you just show up together and work and you, you, may, you may not even like the other guy, like uh, Tangelat has said of he and Teller, um, the famous comic duo, Penn and Teller, he said that in the early days they... It was a very cold relationship, and they regard each other like they were, you know, two guys who worked in a in a dry cleaning store. Um, you, you can have many, many variations. You, you don't need to like the other person. Uh, you you may not even enjoy the company very much. If the work is good, if the creative work is outstanding, then you um, are in one of these partnerships. And it, I think it's, for me, it's very liberating and freeing to see all the ways it can show up. It can also show up with someone who is your domestic partner and who you don't think of as a creative partner, but who is operating on you in a helpful way. And I've heard from a number of people who said, you know, I never thought about my girlfriend. I never thought about my husband as playing a role in my creative life. But now I see through this kind of, you know, constant, you know, just low-level exchange, chatting around dinner you know, or on walks, that that person is serving for me a function that I've seen laid out in your book. And that, that to me, is really interesting. Um, that these, That's another way for a partner to be hidden, not just hidden to the public, it's actually hidden from us. Uh, we're not thinking about it as a, as, a, as a creative exchange, but it is. And finally, as you look at it from a histor- in, with a historical lens, how different is it, or is it different today, when the ability to communicate and stay in touch all the time, no matter where partners may be geographically, physically, etc., that's so much easier. What what does that change, yeah. if anything? It's a you know that tool. Any tool can be uh, turned to uh, to 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 use, or, or it may it may be problematic. The nuclear power can can. Uh, run up electricity for a city and it also could destroy a city. And I think that um, the opportunity, the ability to be on the phone to, at any point to, 
to, to ha have a video link up, to text message. All of these things are critical tools for us to use. And one of the major um, and, and very delicate um, dances that a, that a partnership has to do is between the amount of connection and the amount of distance. And everyone has to calibrate that for themselves in a way that works. Everybody needs sufficient time alone, which may be very minimal or may be very extreme. And everybody needs a certain amount of connection, too. And, you know, this... Um, and, and we all know intuitively what it's like to use it right, when it feels good to text because we just want to be quick and efficient and we want to be able to sort of think about things and type out a response rather than to be on the hook, you know, the way we are in a live conversation. We also all know intuitively, I think, when we're avoiding something, when we really should pick up the phone and call or get, you know, get our butts in the car or on an airplane and go see somebody. And it's very often the case, I think, in this day and age that people are taking the safe and the apparently comfortable route or the sort of the short-term comfort of being more withdrawn when they really should. I mean, there's, an, there's a huge literature on the power of in-person interaction. And I think that we, on the whole, many of us are really not doing enough of that in our lives, but it's, it's not like a formula. I'm not going to say everybody needs to spend more time alone, uh, together. If you read a book like Quiet by Susan Cain, you see that there are a lot of cultures that don't give people nearly enough private space. And for the introverts that she's championing, that's, that is a real problem. So all of us need to, to do this. And it's actually, I think, an exciting time for this conversation because of all these tools that we can, you know, we have so many choices. You know, we can do so many things. I mean, I could be in London tomorrow morning if I needed to. I could also, you know, be face-to-face -face with someone in London within minutes, and that is, that is gives me an enormous amount of freedom that was not available to people, you know, even 50 years ago. Joshua Wolfshank, the book is Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you again. A great questions, great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.